First Baptist Church family. This is Matt Perkinson, and I'm excited to bring you today's lesson from Philippians. We'll be in chapter 3, but before we go there, let's remind ourselves of the context. While in prison in Rome, Paul receives a gift from the church at Philippi that was delivered by a man named Epaphroditus. The epistle that we know as Philippians is Paul's thank you letter for their kindness and support. You'll recall that his letter opens with the greeting, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you in verse 3 of chapter 1. However, this is so much more than just a thank you letter. If you've read much of Paul's letters, he's always teaching, encouraging, rebuking, and exhorting believers and churches. So it's no surprise that while he thanks them for their thoughtful gift, he quickly pivots to exhortation, that they would grow in the faith all the more. More specifically, he calls them to persevere together with joy, joy in prayer, as we saw in Tony's lesson, joy in adversity, as Tyler talked about two weeks ago, and last week, Andrew spoke on the joy through humility. In our lesson today, Paul addresses the joy that is found only in knowing Jesus. The book of Philippians is not just a book about joy, but joy with a purpose, a calling, a mission. It is about advancing the gospel with joy and accomplishing that alongside one's brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, we unpack the joy that is found in knowing Jesus from chapter 3 of Philippians. So, as I read from the English Standard Version, please join me, beginning in verse 1. Scripture says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Right out of the gate, Paul exhorts the believers to be joyful in the Lord. Verse 1, right here. This is both a call and command. Their joy is present and tied to Jesus, not in anything else. This is not happiness or an emotion, but an act of the will that chooses to trust God's purpose and power, even in the midst of great adversity, trial, and hardship. As we move through chapter 3, Paul will unpack a few ways in which believers are to rejoice in the Lord. But Paul turns to his next major theme, discernment. He warns the congregation at Philippi to be on guard against the false teachers known as Judaizers and reminds the readers of the characteristics that are found within the true church. So let's talk about verse 2 and 3 that shows how to recognize and reject false teachers. Scripture says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now you'll remember that the Judaizers wanted to turn Gentiles into Jews by making them adopt the Mosaic law. The Judaizers believed that to be saved in addition to Christ, one must adopt certain Old Testament rituals like circumcision, dietary restrictions, keeping of feasts and holy days. And most importantly, that by doing these works, one would be justified. Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, Judaizers loved to boast about what they were doing for the Lord. These acts they were doing were completely meaningless without a transformed heart. And Paul is quite frank here and calls the Judaizers dogs. 
a term that was often used by Jews to describe Gentiles. Yet, Paul turns around and calls the Jewish false teachers this offensive term. These are not cute pet dogs like we have today. These were wild scavengers that fed on garbage, attacked humans, and were a nuisance to society. He continues clear rebuke by not just calling them these type of dogs, but evildoers who mutilate the flesh. Now, these are Jews. These are the people of Abraham, a part of the covenant, who live by the Mosaic law and have wrongly counted their righteousness from it, and also because they have been circumcised into this covenant. To the Jewish people, circumcision was the mark of God's covenant with Abraham. It was so important that uncircumcised Jews were to be cut off from the covenant community. The act of circumcision was a symbol that declared man's sinfulness and need to be cleansed from sin. We see this in Psalm 51 and Psalm 58, and they believed that they had certain ethnic privileges because of these things. Yet, Paul says, all you did was mutilate your flesh because you are not the true people of God. You're impure and engaged in all kinds of evil. What an indictment. The very fact that they were engaging in external, ceremonial, and other religious ancestral traditions for salvation. These are elements that are not built on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul rebukes them for not having a transformed heart. Then in verse 3, in contrast to the physical circumcision, Paul says the true circumcision is people of God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus, not putting any confidence in the flesh, not physical circumcision, not the works of the law. Anything that is outside of Christ is not the true circumcision of God's people. They worship by the Spirit of God. The Greek word for worship used here is latreu, which means spiritual service. This worship goes beyond singing or worship service participation, but is the reflection of a transformed life. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, spiritual worship or service. The same Greek word is used here in Romans 12.1 as in our text today. One's life, thought, word, and deed is wholly surrendered to the will of God. Not only do they worship through their transformed life, but do so through the Spirit of God. This is not some experiential movement where they're receiving more of the Holy Spirit, but they as God's people being sealed in the Spirit have the work of the Spirit in their lives where He confirms, empowers, and focuses their acts of worship appropriately and correctly. Paul says the glory in Christ Jesus and not in the works of the flesh. He calls the believers to boast in the Lord and not anything accomplished by human efforts. For these human efforts are futile and they accomplish nothing. One must trust and worship the Lord God's way, not man's. You see, true Christians give glory and credit to God for all that they are and have in contrast to false believers who boast according to the flesh, rely upon their good works and religious activities. As Paul continues to point out the folly of justification by works, a person he makes no apologies for bringing up his impressive resume to show that one's spiritual or ethnic privileges are not what makes a person righteous. 
but true joy comes in knowing Christ and Christ alone. So let's read verses 4 through 11 now. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul's testimony here can be divided into two parts, joy and loss. Paul lists seven elements that he formerly believed granted him salvation. And in his commentary, John MacArthur provides some helpful categories to describe these elements. These seven elements begin with salvation by ritual, that is, circumcision. Salvation by race, being a part of the nation of Israel. Salvation by rank, being a part of the tribe of Benjamin, who was one of the most prominent tribes in Israel. Salvation by tradition. Paul was a, says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Salvation by a particular religious office. Paul was a Pharisee, an elite and respected group of men who knew, interpreted, guarded, and obeyed the Mosaic law. And finally, salvation by sincerity. Paul was so zealous about being a Hebrew, he thought he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. And salvation by legalistic righteousness, by all outward appearances, Paul was viewed as righteous. So in verses four through six, Paul says, I thought this was most valuable. I thought it gave me meaning. I thought it granted me favor with God. But in verses seven through 11, Paul confesses that those elements must be moved not in the joy column, but must be moved to the loss column. Why does he say this? It's because Paul had been trusting in a righteousness of his own, found in him rather than a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The problem is there is no righteousness found in him or any person. In Romans 3, we read that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And righteousness cannot come from the law because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Galatians 2.16 reminds us of this as well. It says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In verses 7 through 11, we also read that Paul inputs into uh, what Paul inputs into his new joy column. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 7, Paul makes it clear that whatever bragging rights he may have had in the list of these seven elements we talked about earlier, he has come to realize that it is worthless and not just worthless, but rubbish, which is literally translated dung or excrement in view of knowing Christ. He renounces all of those elements that he once strived after to please God, now realizing those things are not credited to him as righteousness. Knowing Christ and receiving righteousness through faith in Christ is something to boast in. What does Paul mean when he says to know Christ Jesus, my Lord, in verse 7? The term for knowledge here is a form of the noun gnosis, which means to know experientially by personal involvement. Paul describes knowing Christ as more than an intellectual endeavor, but one of personal experience and personal and relational knowledge and understanding. Not only does Paul says he knows Jesus, but expounds on that more with a beautiful description. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Salvation comes through deep knowledge and and an intimate bond with Jesus Christ as Lord, meaning he's sovereign king over all, and especially the life of every believer. Paul says there's incredible joy in knowing Christ and add that he has received a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, verses 8 and 9. Paul clearly states it is not a righteousness that he possessed or one that comes from the law, but from faith in Christ that comes from God and depends on faith. Righteousness is right standing with God. Paul had spent much of his life trying to attain a righteousness from the law in his own merit only to realize that God's righteousness was his standard, which no one can meet, not even Paul. When he saw himself for who he truly was, a wretched sinner, Paul gladly gave up the burden the law had placed on him for the free pardon of sin and the righteousness of faith in Christ. You see, there's joy in knowing God, joy in receiving his righteousness, and also there's joy in knowing the power of his resurrection, which we read in verse 10. Paul had experienced the saving knowledge of Jesus and knew that he had also been given the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that same power that raised Jesus from the dead was in him now. Jesus' resurrection was the greatest display of Christ's power, rising from the dead, defeating both the physical and spiritual realms. Paul had experienced the power of the resurrection in two ways, at salvation and the power that sanctifies him and all believers to live a holy life, defeating temptations and trials. And Paul gladly gave up any earthly recognition and glory for the the gift of salvation and sanctification that he had received. Paul not only rejoices in the salvation and sanctification that comes from Christ, but he's given the privilege to share in his suffering, becoming like Jesus in death, to attain the resurrection from the dead which we read in verse 11. Paul knew something about suffering. Now remember, he's writing this letter 
from prison. He endured more persecution and suffering than most. Yet, Paul explains that the greatest moments of fellowship and communion with Christ are found in the deep times of suffering, as suffering often draws believers closer to him. Our God who is merciful, compassionate, and is aware of our weaknesses. Paul was so committed to Christ and the salvation and forgiveness of sins he had received, he was willing to share in the suffering of Christ because he knew that when his last breath came, he had a sure guarantee of the resurrection from the dead. And this is a reference to the rapture, when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and be changed forever. So what do we gain from being Christ followers? Paul says here that we have gained a knowledge of Christ, an identifying with him, and the righteousness of Christ when we were unrighteous. The power of Christ is in our sanctification, and the, we have the ability to participate also in Christ's sufferings, and we can share Christ's glory during the glorification, the resurrection from the dead. And remember, we're to have discernment against false teachers and have joy and find our worth in knowing the Lord. This was so important to Paul and to the believers at Philippi that Paul exhorts the church and all believers to keep pressing on in knowledge with joy. You see, there's not just joy in knowing Christ for salvation, but there is a joy in pursuing Christ, an active pursuance. So let's read verses 12 through 16. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 12 and 13, Paul unapologetically reveals that he has not arrived at a complete mastery of living for Jesus. This is to encourage the church at Philippi that he too is on the journey with them of sanctification. They shouldn't despair but are to keep running as he is persevering as well. Note the humility of Paul here as well, as he readily admits that he needs to continue to grow in Christ-likeness and encourages them to do so. In verses 13 and 14, Paul reveals that he doesn't remain stagnant and just says, oh, well, God, God knows I'm a sinner and I won't get any better. No, he actively strains forward and presses on toward the goal for the prize. And what is that prize? Well, based on our reading earlier, it's greater intimate knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ and the sure promise of the resurrection. Paul exhorts the church at Philippi to, to not grow complacent and content where they are in their relationship with the Lord. But keep striving, growing, learning, and plumbing the depths of the word, knowing that the prize is deeper intimacy with Christ and the resurrection. Moving on to verses 15 and 16, Paul says that every true Christian must have this mindset of pursuing Christ and remain in the spiritual race. 
And if anyone thinks differently and disagrees with Paul, he says that God will reveal this folly to you through his word, spirit, or through chastening, because God will do whatever it takes for believers to pursue godliness and will provide what is necessary to grow. And in verse 16, he exhorts the church at Philippi to be consistent. They must keep living and walking in the life of faith that they know and have been following. They are to stay in their lane in the race and not deviate. Now let's read the final verses of chapter 3. And in these final verses, we remember whose we are. Verses 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. From verse 17, we see that we are to follow examples. Literally means be fellow imitators with me. Paul calls the church at Philippi to imitate the way he lived and is living, not in a prideful or exaltation kind of way, but in a humble leadership way, clearly admitting that he is a sinner in need of the grace of Christ, but he is actively pursuing godliness and invites them to follow him. As John MacArthur says, if Paul had been perfect, he would not have been an example believers could follow. We need to follow someone who's not perfect so we can know how to overcome our imperfections, struggles, trials, and pride. So not only are we to follow Paul's example and the examples of others who are striving to be more like Christ, but Paul tells the church to flee from enemies in verses 18 and 19. You'll recall that Paul began the chapter instructing the believers to have discernment against false teachers and closes the chapter with the same idea, calling them to remember that there are two categories, saved and unsaved, righteous and unrighteous, sheep and goats. Beware of the false teachers who have infiltrated the church and to be aware that their end is destruction, not just in the present world, but eternal destruction for practicing such things and being lovers of the world. And in contrast to that, he calls the believers to not be like the evildoers, but to remember their citizenship. While remembering the end for the unrighteous, Paul exhorts the believers to also remember their citizenship and rejoice as they remember whose they belong to, whose they are. The earthly body will be changed into the glorious body by his power, the power that enables God to rule and reign over all creation. But there is a cost to following Jesus. There is suffering that comes relationships ruined and severed. But the believers here are not to tether themselves to those relationships or to the world and be led by the belly like the evildoers, but they're to remember that their ultimate citizenship lies in heaven where they await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that knowing and growing in Him 
is their ultimate joy. What about you? Where do you find your joy? Are you like Paul in his former days, finding joy and worth in your pedigree, career, possessions, hobbies? Maybe finding ultimate joy in your kids or grandkids? Paul says that that stuff is worthless. It's excrement compared to the riches of knowing Christ. As believers, our salvation, sanctification, and the glorious awaited glorification found in Jesus is to be our greatest joy and source of security. If we find ultimate joy in anything other than Christ, the Bible says we're in sin. So will you cling to your stuff, your IQ, your 401k, even your status as a good and tithing church member that attends every time the doors are open? Search your heart deeply and rightly, and if you are trusting in anything else other than the righteousness of Christ, confess and repent of that before the Lord. Secondly, we are to gain joy through knowing Jesus and living in obedience to Him. Do you have a spiritual goal that you want to see yourself accomplish within the next month, six months, or a year? We set goals for all kinds of things, including physical fitness, skills, financial goals. But what about setting spiritual goals? These are intentional goals that you set to know and grow in the Lord and is the most important goal you can set this year. So at the end of this lesson, I encourage you to write two to three goals down that you want to accomplish spiritually in the next month, six months, year and years to come. See, Paul's goal was that everything of who he was and everything that he did was to glorify Christ. What about you? Do you live in this way? Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are you actively and intentionally pursuing Christ as the greatest good in your life? You can. And we should as believers. Finally, as Paul was suffering in prison, he reminded the church at Philippi and us as believers that suffering is a part of the Christian life. When you suffer, remember that your citizenship is in heaven, where you will one day be with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Believer, does that bring you hope and assurance? Or is that a letdown to the suffering that you're going through? Is the, the hope of the resurrection not enough for you? Before I pray to end our time together, I invite you to pause this podcast and take time to search your hearts and motives and confess and repent of anything the Lord has revealed to you about what has supreme value to you. We've covered a lot, covered a lot today, but where do we find our joy? Is it in Christ? Or is it in something else? If our ultimate joy is in something else, we're in sin. So just take some time and, and pray to the Lord and confess those things. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your word and how it chastens us, how it shows our, our sinfulness and the error of our ways, and how it brings us back to you, that you are the standard of righteousness, standard of holiness, 
and that there has been no one created that meets that level of righteousness and holiness because of our sinfulness, our desire to fill that which meets our desires of our own belly and appetites. But we are grateful for the righteousness that can be found and is found in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's someone listening to this podcast today that has never confessed Christ as Lord, that by hearing your word today and the unrighteousness that uh, we are full of has convicted them of their sin, that they would contact one of the pastors at our church and ask more about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would save them. Father, I pray for all of us as believers, we all have much sanctification still to accomplish. Um, And so, Father, I pray that your word would continue to grow us in the image of Jesus Christ, that we would take away that which we cling to as important, whether it be our retirement savings, our, our kids in sports, our stuff, uh, things that are good things and necessary things, but aren't of supreme value if we have valued those things over Christ. I pray that you'd forgive us of that and that we would strive together in our faith all the more pursuing Christ that we'd allow you to have your way to shape our minds and our hearts for your glory. And Father, also to realize that if we are not in a moment of suffering, suffering is indeed coming in one shape or, uh, or form and in another way. And so help us to prepare for that now so that we can continue to have a kingdom mindset and glorify you amidst suffering. We need your help. Pray that you would strengthen all those who uh, are listening today by your word, and that we would look forward to the glorification, the resurrection of the dead, where we will be united with Christ once and for all.